You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Don't you love it when uh, sometimes we hear the scripture read and it ends kind of ominous or heavy? And we say the word of the word of the Lord, and we all say thanks be to God. Sometimes you respond with more fullness, and other times you're like, "Thanks be to God." <laughs> so yes, this seems to be one of those times. I'll make it simple for you. Uh, more people are going to hell than are not. That includes most of you. God will choose a few of you that you so you don't have to go, and that's just the way it is. Let's pray. What? You laugh? You know, we titled this series Clear Mysteries. A clear mystery, right? It's, a, it's an oxymoron. I'll grant you that. Things that don't go together. A way of communication that's a little bit indirect. But, but why? Why use indirect in, in a communication? Why not just be direct? Well, here's the thing is that we don't receive the truth very well. It's hard for us sometimes to hear the truth. I'm not just talking about big truths about God. I'm just talking about good old regular truths. Like we'll see ourselves in ways that are often skewed. We'll either think of ourselves better than we should and someone points out our wrong and we can't see it. Or even worse, we'll see ourselves worse than what we should and someone tries to say, no, you're okay, you're, you're good. And we can't see that. It's like we're, we're, we're blind in every direction and, and we're deaf in every direction. We just can't hear it. And so the reason that this kind of comes at us in a slant, to kind of quote what I said uh, last week, Emily Dickinson's poem, tell the truth and when you tell it, tell it slant. Like come at it in such a way that um, is, a, is a little indirect and kind of entices people. Like, you know, if you don't want somebody to touch, if you want somebody to touch something, excuse me, then you should pay, put a sign on it that says wet paint, <laughs> right? It kind of brings you in. So the, the, the series on Clear Mysteries is a series both about how Jesus taught, like he taught with clear mysteries, he taught with parables, parables both conceal and reveal, and they reveal in their own special way by concealing something by kind of inviting us in. But it's not just the way that Jesus taught. It's also the way the Gospels teach us about Jesus. That is, the Gospels seem to model Jesus' methodology, right? His pedagogy, his style of teaching get modeled by the Gospel writers because Jesus is presented to us in much the same way in these kind of clear mysteries. So, there, this parable, told in Matthew chapter 22, thank you, uh, Ashley, for reading it for us. This parable is the third one in a string of three. And the first one, again, we mentioned it last week. We didn't preach about it, but we mentioned it. Uh, the first one is about a parable of two sons. Um, Jesus says, uh, a father uh, needs some work done, and so he asks his sons, can you help me? And one of them says, yes, Dad, I'll be there early in the morning. But early in the morning, he wasn't there. He decided not to come. But the other son, who had said, no, Dad, I can't make it, did get up and did show up. And Jesus is like, which one had done better? And it was obvious that the, 
It wasn't a matter so much just about what you said, it was about what you did. That, that what Jesus is talking about is a life, a life that is lived, a life that is experienced, that it's embodied. It's not just a matter of what we say. So much of Christianity, I think, has been boiled down, especially in the United States, to you just think certain things about God. And if you have the right thoughts about God, you're okay. And if you don't have the right thoughts about God, you're not okay. And it's all kind of up in your head. And it doesn't have much to do with your body or with how you live. And the point is, that's just not the way Jesus understood things. That wasn't the Judaism of his childhood. And for that matter, the separation between Judaism and Christianity hadn't really happened at this point, right? All of these people are Jewish, both ethnically and religiously, including Jesus himself. And the way in which they understood the relationship with God was very personal, but also very, very integrated into their lives. They didn't just have ideas about God. They believed that God was real and God had requirements for how, the, how they should live. And I think that's what, at least part of what this parable is telling us, is just that. Um, the second parable, and it's the parable that we looked at last week, which is very similar to this one, is a parable of a, a, a person who comes, he buys some land, he prepares the land, he, he plants a vineyard, he builds a watchtower, he digs the ditches, everything's done. All the work is done except for the harvest. And he rents it out. And the people who, if you were here last week, you heard it. If you, if you weren't, you can go back and listen to the podcast on our website. So in that story, um, God, of course, is the vineyard owner, and uh, Israel is those who have rented the field. And he has messengers that come, which represent the prophets, and then he sends his son, which, of course, is Jesus. I mean, it's a very clear mystery. I mean, it's not very opaque at all. For, for, a, for a guy who says, I speak in parables in order to conceal He's not concealing it very well at that point. In fact, he says, when he was asked, why do you speak in parables? And he said, I speak in parables to conceal, but I'm giving you the mystery, but those outside won't understand it. That makes it sound like the disciples should understand it and that everyone else who aren't the disciples maybe shouldn't, which might be like the, the, the religious leaders of the day. Except when Jesus told that parable about the vineyard, the religious leaders of the day said, hey, he's talking about us. We need to get that guy. I'm like, well, wait a minute. I didn't think they were supposed to understand. And his disciples were like, hmm, I wonder what he's talking about. And I'm like, I thought, wait a minute. I thought they were supposed to understand. It's like the way the story plays out is its own kind of clear mystery. It's its own parable in response. Like, what in the world is happening here? So we get this third and kind of final parable in the three and again, it's, it obviously kind of seems like much the same story. There's a king who seems to be like God, and he's going to be hosting a wedding banquet. That sounds fun. Like, who wouldn't want to go to the king's wedding, um, and particularly the reception of the king's wedding, right? And so he sets it up, and he invites everybody he wants to invite, and then they're not interested. They're too busy. They're busy with their lives. They're busy with their businesses, right? They're their farm and their, and their company and everything's right for them. And so they don't want to come and they say no. And the king's like, this is not fun, right? I've, I've done all this work. I'm excited. My son's getting married. And so he sends out his servants and says, we're going to expand the guest list. <laughs> More people are, are going to come. And they go out and they try and 
together. Interesting enough, it says the good and the bad. Now, I do want to get there to that idea of good and bad because we titled today's sermon uh, kind of both and, both good and bad, uh, understanding that Jesus is both Savior and Lord. But that's where I want to end. But before we get there, I want to say this. Reading parables like this, particularly parables that might trouble us some, make us a bit uncomfortable, I think it's good. I think it's good to be uncomfortable. I, th- I think it's good to be, to be stretched. You realize that Jesus was put to death, right, because people wanted to kill him. So if you read the Gospels and you're never upset by what Jesus is saying, there's either you're the perfect person that Jesus wanted there to be, and you're like Jesus' ideal disciple. That's a possibility. Or you're not understanding what he's saying. Which seems to me it's more likely the latter. Because the chances that you're the perfect human that's following Jesus just the way you're supposed to seems a bit unlikely. But then if you're never kind of troubled by Jesus, if you never hear what Jesus, is, Jesus says, you're like, well, that guy should shut up. You know? That guy makes me angry. That guy makes me uncomfortable. Of course he did. He made some people so angry, so uncomfortable, that they wanted to kill him. In fact, they did. So in this story, it actually says that the king kind of sends an army, and the army destroys the land of the people. Now, I'm not quite sure how they might have understood that vision of judgment when Jesus taught that parable, but I'll tell you this. By the time Matthew is writing that gospel, there had been a judgment. And they all knew what it was. And it seemed like not just a clear and present danger, but a danger that had already come. Because by the time that Matthew's writing the gospel, Rome has come and destroyed Jerusalem. The temple's been laid waste. The idea that that there is kind of judgment that happens had already been kind of realized. And one of the dangers we have, I think, when we read stories like this is we're very quick to individualize them and we're very quick to kind of pull the scriptures into our own context. And don't get me wrong, I think the scriptures are for our context. They are for us. But it's not just for us, right? They, they had an audience before us and, and, and a good part of that audience before us was the chosen, right? God's people. And if we forget that, then we're going to kind of distort the story in ways that are pretty dangerous. Because God did invite a group of people, and the scripture often refers to them as the chosen or as the elect. And those people are descendants of Abraham. And we can't can't forget that. Um, I think it's vitally important. And to see the way in which God is committed to making sure they get there. He prepares it for them. He invites them. He sends people after them. When they don't come, he sends more people after them. When they don't come, he sends more people after them. When they don't come, he, he sends his own son for them, right? All, all of that is this kind of pursuit of God, uh, of excuse me, God's pursuit of his chosen people. Um, we get this later in the New Testament as well. Paul will say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to self- for salvation, first the Jew and then the Greek. 
Now, again, it's a text I think we often misunderstand. It doesn't mean first the Jew, like up here, and then the Greek down here, as though there's a tiered membership in God's community, so that if you're Jewish, you're better, and if you're not Jewish, eh, we might let you in, but, you know, it wasn't God's first choice. It's a, it's a history of salvation. It's chronological. I'm not ashamed of the Gospels, the power of God to salvation, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. Well, of course, that's exactly how it happened. It came first to Abraham. It came to Abraham's descendants, right? And not all of Abraham's descendants, right? Because it wasn't Abraham's firstborn, Ishmael. It was his secondborn, Isaac. It wasn't Isaac's firstborn, Esau. It was his secondborn, Jacob, right? That's, that's just the way. And when you hear that first son, second son uh, parable, which was two parables ago, you should, what would have been ringing in the ears of the Jewish people at the time is the way in which the second son was the one who had done what was right. Because to them, the second son is Isaac. The second son is Jacob, right? The second son is the son of promise, like where, where that resides with them. So all of these things are there, and it is a very Jewish story. And if we take it out of that context, I think we're going to, we're going to miss it and to realize that our God is not just a God up there somewhere. Our God is a God here. He is amongst us. He is with us. And that's why what we do matters. So it's not just a matter of our minds or our hearts. It's also a matter of our bodies. Which brings me back to that idea that it's not either or. It is both and. Yes, and something else. Because when we do it either or, we, we end up kind of on one extreme or the other. When it's either or, we're either concerned about people's souls and we're not really concerned about their bodies. And so we come up with words to talk about that aspect of the gospel as though it's secondary or not as important. The social gospel. That's just people worried about feeding the hungry and housing the homeless and educating the uneducated and welcoming the stranger and providing health care for the sick or justice for those who are imprisoned. That's not the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is the salvation of their soul. You can feed them a sandwich and their stomach might be full, but they'll still spend eternity in hell. That kind of message misses the very embodiment of the gospel. But here's the challenge. If we try and just talk about social things and we don't talk about matters of the heart, we end up being dressed physically but undressed uh, spiritually. Like, thank God you all came to church today dressed. <laughs> like, if some of you had come to church today undressed, it would have made the rest of us very uncomfortable. In fact, me even talking about it makes some of you uncomfortable, right? Preachers shouldn't make, you know, naked jokes. And maybe there's a lot of truth to that. But when, when the king comes in and he sees one of the guests and he doesn't have on his wedding garment, what, what, that's what he's talking about. Like you're improperly dressed for this occasion. What well, doesn't mean that, you know, he didn't have on a suit and tie. Like he should have dressed up for it and didn't. And now God's coming after him and he's going to throw him into outer darkness, right? Because he wasn't dressed well. Like that would be a pretty kind of petty God. But our point, our, the point here is that our God isn't petty. And what he is concerned about 
what the, the vast majority of commentators over the centuries have suggested is that the, the wedding garment is the righteousness of God. That he might have paid attention to the outward things, but hadn't paid attention to the inward things. And when Christianity pays attention to the outward and not the inward, it becomes a form of thinly veiled atheism. We do all those social things because we think God is impotent, that God really won't do anything. And that's why we have to hold these things together, prayer and action, contemplation and practice. And I know we've been told so often that um, salvation is all about grace and grace is a free gift and all you have to do is have faith. And of course, all of that is true. But what is also true, again, this is both and, not either or. What is also true is that there are requirements for being a part of the community. Yes, everyone is invited to the table. Yes, Jesus died for all. Yes, God wants to be your father. God is your father, frankly. You might reject God and go away, but God, God sees you as his child. So you might reject God, but God isn't rejecting you. But when you come into the family, guess what? The Father has certain requirements that he wants you to do. So hear me clearly on this. Let me get this out of the way for a second. Hear me really clearly on this. The reason that we invite everyone to the table is because there are no requirements for coming to the table. You are created in the image of God. Jesus died so that you can have everlasting life. So so we all can be here. This is where we are to be. But as you're coming to the table, there's all sorts of expectations about how you ought to live, about how you should treat one another. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. There are plenty of things to do. We quote him often, but uh, Dallas Willard says, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. That might not be a direct quote, but you'll, you see what I mean there, right? Grace is not opposed to effort. There are things to do. There are prayers to be made. And I realize I'm, as the old preachers would say, I'm preaching to the choir on this one. I'm preaching to you on a day when you're here at church, but regular church attendance is good for you. It's what you ought to do. It's a way of kind of clothing your spirit. The same way that you wouldn't come physically naked, you should not come spiritually naked. In the same way that you're concerned about your life, your farm, your company, your business, you have to also be concerned about your soul to care about the person that you are, about who you are and how you act because what you do and who you are 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 related to each other because you're an integrated whole. Like we'd like to just talk about being human beings. You know, I'm a human being, not a human doing. And it's all about who I am. Except what you do on a regular basis will shape who you are. You know, the nutritionists say you are what you eat which of course is true, right? If you eat a lot of unhealthy things, you kind of become unhealthy. If you eat healthy things, you become healthy. So there's a regular kind of practice to it. 
And Christologically, we're talking about Christ. The person of Christ and the work of Christ are fully integrated. It's not just that someone died for the sake of his friends. It's that Jesus died for the sake of his friends. And that's who it is. It's who it is and it's what he's done. And all of that holds together. And the same is true for you. So yeah, we all make mistakes. We understand that. We might tell a lie. But if you're lying kind of every day, all day, and you're lying to your family, and you're lying to your boss, and you're lying to yourself, you're telling yourself things that aren't true, you know what you are? A liar. (laughs) What you're doing and who you are have become the same. Like you all know that I teach at the college and there, there are these people, they come to the college, they pay tuition, they enroll in classes, they attend classes, they read assignments, they write assignments, they engage in class discussion. Do you know what we call them? We call them students. Not just because their, cla- their name is on a class roll, we call them students because they, they, that's their doing, that's their behaving. And you are Christians, not just because your name is on a roll, though it is on a roll, but you're Christians because that's what you're supposed to do. So that's why we come. That's why we pray. That's why we sing. That's why we share the grace and peace. That's why we come to the table. That's why we fellowship. And that's why we serve. And if you're not doing those things, your soul is undressed. And if your soul's undressed, God's going to put you in the dark for your own sake because if you're naked nobody wants to see that (laughs) like sometimes and I'll say this in front of my children sometimes I send my children to their room that happens right parents send their kids to the room and sometimes when parents send their kids to the room they're kind of doing it kind of for their own sanity (laughs) you just need to go over there and sit in your room for a while but God's not like that. God's better. God's better than we are. God's not just sending us out in the darkness, right, because he needs some sanity. He's putting us in the darkness because it's for our own good, right? All acts of God are loving. God's forgiveness is loving, and God's justice is also loving. And I think that's how we have to hear these texts. And we see it in God's perpetual pursuit of his elect, the Jews. And then we hear it as the elect become not the end of God's activity, but the agency of God's activity. Where the elect becomes those through him, he now reaches the world. The good and the bad. Both and. We understand that Jesus is our Savior. That he's forgiven us of our sins. And we come to the table and we celebrate that. But we also need to hear that Jesus is not just our Savior. He is also our Lord. And as our Lord, that means there are things for us to do. And again, just remember that, that Willard quote. Grace 
is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. It's not that your works earn this. Bonhoeffer says something similar. In the cost of discipleship, which is what we're talking about here, the cost of discipleship. In the cost of discipleship, Bonhoeffer will say, grace is free, but it's not cheap. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. It costs something. It costs our Lord something. And then our Lord calls us to follow him. And to follow him means practicing our life. In my tradition growing up, we called this sanctification, right? We'd all kind of join the club, but were we going to practice it? And again, it wasn't this or that. It was both this and that. So my prayer for us today is that we can be affirmed in our understanding and our belief that Jesus is our Savior. And that we can also commit ourselves, surrender ourselves to the fact that he is also our Lord and that our lives would be shaped by that. John Chrysostom, an early pastor and leader in the church, when he was preaching on this text and he got to that whole idea about the guy who wasn't wearing his wedding garment, he said, if you want an example about people who have great wedding garments, you need to look out into the desert and, and look at these desert fathers and mothers who aren't concerned about having all the stuff of the world, but have committed themselves to lives of prayer, to simplicity. They're not so busy, but they are present with God. If we can have that kind of practice, that kind of presence, our souls and spirits can be as well clothed as our bodies. And we'll be ready to celebrate. Celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is what we're practicing every Sunday when we do come to the table. So Lord, give us eyes to see, to see as you see. Lord, give us ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Fill our hearts with courage so that we might live with faithfulness before you. Give us joy for this journey so that it might be our strength and give us hope for a better way of being your faithful people in this world. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.